last day of your vacation. You're sitting on the beach, maybe on a dock with your toes dipped into the water, or maybe in, a, in front of a campfire, you know, watching those glowing embers die down as the fire dies away. And you reminisce the past few days or weeks that have made up your vacation. And you feel how good it feels to be living there, to be riding your bike somewhere different, to be doing things that are different, just away from the hustle bustle of life. And then you lament the return to quote unquote normal life. And probably around this point, you think to yourself, man, I wish this could go on forever, that the vacation would never end. You get on your bike and you ride lazily to the next town, city, country. You meander your way through time, taking in the sights and the smells, the different ways of life and the people, the people you meet along the way that show you life from a different perspective. Ah, that's the perfect life. But wait a second, if you do that, if you lived your life on the road with no end in sight, would it still be vacation? Or would it just be life? A different kind of life. Vacation is a period of recreation, time spent away from home. But if the road is your home, then how could it be vacation? At what point does an adventure like that cease to be vacation and become your life? Who you are, what you do? Is there a line you cross? Can you see that line? Can you purposely cross that line? On this show, we're going to meet Simon and Lisa Thomas, who left for an 18-month motorcycle adventure 11 years ago. Now, it could be that they just lost track of time, but I think you're going to hear in this interview that they found something far more alluring on the road than the life they left behind. And to be honest, after talking with them for over three hours on Skype, it didn't seem to me that they were planning on ending it anytime real soon. You gotta wonder what would motivate somebody to come to the end of an 18-month motorcycle adventure and then say, ah, let's sell everything and keep going. Did they discover something on the road that few people get to experience? I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. Simon Thomas, half of the To Ride the World team. Hi, I'm Lisa Thomas, the other half of To Ride the World team, and you're listening to Adventure, Adventure Rider, Rider Radio. Before we get to Simon and Lisa, I want to talk for a minute about this debate between the paper map people and the GPS people. There seems to be two different camps. I mean, if, if you sit around a campfire with a group of motorcyclists and talk about this, you can have some people that are in the GPS camp, love them, use them, that's all they use. They can have some people that sit in the paper camp, or they're going to sit there with the paper maps, they love them, that's all they use. And of course, you're going to find those people who go both ways. But in any case, one of the things with the GPS is that I find, and I love technology, I really do, but I love the melding of the both. I use the GPS and I also use a map with it and I love topographical maps. But one problem I find with the GPS and especially the handheld GPSs is the slow writing of the maps. So when you scan across your map, you have to scan across with your cursor and then wait for the map to write. And on the last trip I was out on, as I was trying to figure out where I was, we were trying to, to solve some mystery of our, our searching for some ghost towns in, in southern Ontario. And I really got frustrated with the, this map writing and I thought this is so slow. And I, 
I grab my iPhone, which happens to be an older iPhone with a, a map program that I have on it. And it has downloaded maps that I've already downloaded through Wi-Fi. I'm not using 3G for it. They're in the background there and it has topographic maps. And I'm going through those topographic maps. It writes instantly. The thing with the smartphones is they're made with such high quality processors now that they can process information very, very quickly. Here I spent, you know, $450 on this handheld GPS or somewhere thereabouts. And I've got the cell phone already and the apps, a lot of them are free. A lot of the downloads are free. Why don't I just download it to my phone? And the only reason I can come up with that I don't just strictly use my phone for the GPS, the only real reason that I can come up with is that it's not waterproof. So basically, the only thing my handheld Garmin uh, GPS has over, I think it's a 62S I have or, or something like that. It's uh, the newest one, 62CS maybe. Um, the only thing that it has over my cell phone, my, app, my just my bare bones smartphone, is the fact that it's waterproof. That's it. So it's something to consider next time you're, you're thinking about a GPS, you're thinking about map. I still think you should always have the map. The inherent problem with a GPS with a small screen, even if it's a larger screen, you're looking at the world through a straw. And the reason that if you're lost, you want to climb up somewhere high to, to have a look around is because you want to survey the lay of the land. And the only way you're going to see the lay of the land is with a paper map. But I will tell you, the people that are in the paper map camps who say they won't fail... I pulled over uh, in, a, in a rainstorm underneath an overpass to uh, figure out where I was because I'd missed a turn off or something. I was coming across the country uh, on a trip and I opened up the map and I was looking through it and I didn't realize how much spray there was in the air and how much rain was being blown around. And next thing I know, as I'm, as I'm looking there, my tracing the, the roads with one of my fingers, I'm holding the map with the other hand, the map started disintegrating in my hand. And by the time I was done, I tried to fold it up, but it literally, it fell apart and it, it just fell down like a stain over over my, my front pannier bags. I couldn't believe it. It's paper and it died. It doesn't even have batteries. So there you go. Even the paper can fail you. Okay, you're going to love this. We're going to talk with Simon and Lisa Thomas. They have a website called toridetheworld.com. That's the numeral to ridetheworld.com. And they've been riding their motorcycles around the world for, get this, 11 years two months, eight days. That's 78 countries and 526,255 kilometers so far. I'll say it again, 526,255 kilometers. These are people who know what it's like to ride a motorcycle on an adventure. And I would think that they know it so well that they don't even realize they know it. These are the type of people that if you could just spend an hour with them, you're going to learn so much from them because they're going to tell you things without even realizing they're telling you. They know this stuff so well because it's their life. It's what they do. They're not on vacation. This is now a way of life. They each ride their own bike. Simon's riding an R1100GS, a 1999 R1100GS. And Lisa's riding an F650GS, a 2001 F650GS. When we caught up with them, they were in... We are literally in a, uh, a small concrete room on a beach in Mexico. Very, very, very hot. And the humidity is, I think, 87% today. It's a little difficult to package what they do and give it a name. So I asked them to introduce themselves and tell us what they do. All right. Welcome. Okay. <laughs> um, um, hi. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm Lisa Thomas. Um, and I am probably like to classify myself as a motorcyclist. 
Well, that was deep and resounding. Well, good morning, Jim. I'm Simon Thomas, half of the To Ride the World team. And for the last 11 years, I would describe myself as a motorcyclist, adventurer, writer, photographer, and all those other wonderfully romantic uh, terms. You must have people ask you all the time what it is you do, and how do you do it, for that matter? You know, the two questions, the two questions that we get asked the most, by far, is, um, first of all, how do you and Lisa maintain a healthy relationship being on the road together 24-7 in some pretty, you know, pressurized situations? And secondly, how the hell do you afford it? And the reality is you end up becoming very, very good at things you had no interest in before the journey started. You think on your feet and you develop your entrepreneurial skills. Can you tell us a bit about the old life? And I say the old life is the, the life that you used to have before you became Motorcycle Adventures, which, seem, must see, which must seem so long ago. I mean, 11 years is a long time to do anything. And um, I'd like to know what that was like before you started. You know, what was the old life like? Well, that's, it's, a, it's a great question because, first, first of all, um, I think what everybody expects is for it to feel like a long time ago. But the last 11 years have gone by so insanely quickly. Uh, we've had so little time to really be reflective or to get bored in the last 11 years that it's just it's gone by in a blur. 11 years ago, um, I think both of us, first of all, were very, very different people. Um, I was uh, I was very corporate. Um, I owned a couple of companies. I'd previously been in sales, um, and I think the realization was that after one particularly bad year, uh, we had a great standard of living and no quality of life. And what that means is we had all the things I think that most people would define as items of success: the right kind of watch, the right car, clothes, blah blah blah. And Lisa and I, you know, we 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 just weren't terribly happy. We weren't we weren't fulfilled. Um, Lisa was in IT computers. Uh, previous to that, she was a musician. Um, and in one particular year, uh, my mother was diagnosed with an aggressive breast cancer. Lisa's father uh, underwent an emergency uh, quadruple heart bypass. And I had a very bad motorcycle accident, which very nearly took off my uh, right foot and left me. Um, hospitalized, not hospitalized, rather the, uh, horizontal is the word I'm scrabbling for, for about 16 months. Um, so it was very, very, very different to what we're now doing. But it, it, as Simon says, it doesn't really feel that long ago. I've just been rereading some of our first few months on the road and I, I can remember everything perfectly like it just happened last year. So trying to think of 11 years ago and how we were, um, Yes, Simon says we were we were just doing the usual living, you know, getting up, going to work, coming back, going shopping, housework, that, that you just seem to do as as is expected. It's the norm, and I can't say that you know we were we were desperately unhappy, but I know that we were searching for something, and we didn't know what it was. By that time, a lot of people um, would have had children, starting a family, etc. But but we. We had reasons that that wasn't on our on our list, um, and I think we were searching for something else. Um, luckily, we were both searching for the same thing. We didn't know it at the time, but you told we me were. you were searching for me. That was a lie. Oh, yeah. that's harsh. Sorry. Really? <laughs> we celebrate nineteen years. Oh, together congratulations! This that's great. Yeah. Married, 
married 19 years. So somebody pointed out, yeah, you've been on the road for more than half your married life. And I think it's because I'm continually trying to get away from you and you're continually chasing me. I am. It's true. Yeah. It's funny. We had, a, we had an email from somebody recently. And one of the great things with the internet is that people are able to pass on their perspectives. And we're very lucky that we have, we have people following us that throw information at us and give us a, a chance to view ourselves in a very different way. I put up a very simple comment on Instagram. Um, I think it was a few weeks ago about Simon Lisa Thomas tried the world, blah, 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 living life on her own terms for the last uh, 11 years. And it was just a throwaway comment because I only had 140 characters to, to explain what we were doing. And I had several people, but one guy in particular come back and said, you know, do you realize how poignant that is? I'd never thought about that. It isn't just that you've been, you know, you haven't, your wheels haven't just been turning for 11 years, but quite literally for 11 years, you've been living life on your own terms. And Lisa and I had a, a coffee and we sat down and I think it suddenly began to hit home that going back to your question, um, we were we were quite literally the hamsters on the hamster wheel. Um, and we, we, we had some success and we were doing the thing. But looking back, it really was just existing in as much as we were we were performing our lives based on everybody else's expectations of of who and what we should be. And I think the most amazing thing for me personally is that for the last 11 years, for good and for bad, and there have been some extremely difficult times, that they've been our choices, it's been our lives, our terms, and we feel comfortable living with the consequences. And I think as long as you can get your head around the fact that you, if you live with the consequences and you're up to that, the sky's the limit. And quite frankly, that's why I get so interested in stories like yours, um, because I tend to think along this way, uh, and and I've never been one that's fit the mold in life. And I've always yes. wondered how so many people can go through life fitting the mold. But I think as I get further on rather in life and older, I think I start to realize that it, it has a lot to do with security. There, there's something to be said that... Um, I think it's scary to go and do what you're doing. I really do. I mean, especially you guys. Like, you know, part of part of your thing, and you, maybe you don't see it this way, but part of your your, um, I think the real difference in what you're doing is the fact that you're not only just depending on the two of you and dealing with life as it comes at you. Same as it does, a lot of people can relate to that and say, yes, well, I deal with the same thing. I mean, life throws things at me, be it health or finances or whatever. But you're you're putting yourself in situations where you're not even in your own country, where you don't have that social uh, infrastructure that is there that most people safety have. Net. The safety net, yeah. So I, I think that's what really makes you so unique in what you're doing. I think a lot of it also has to do with upbringing and, and the attitude that your family around you um, it, it lends you to, to, to think of when you're growing up. Um, I mean, both both parents there, there were no there were no restrictions in in what we were allowed to, to think. Well, for me especially, there was no well, no dear, you can't do that. I would come along and say that I fancied doing something, attempting something, maybe reading something. And it was always, okay, great, try it, why not? And I think that I see a lot of kids these days, they're brought up in, in a very controlled environment. Um, you can do this, you can't do that, you can't walk on the grass, you dog must be on the lead, you have to do this, be picked up from school, not allowed to walk back. There's so many restrictions these days growing up, and I understand the reasons why, but there seem to be so 
little restriction when I was growing up. And maybe that, that has led to this, this need for further exploration, this, this need for always wanting to, to try more, to, to extend our knowledge. These days, it's, you can sit in front of a computer and you can get all of the I'm knowledge. Gonna, I'm going to ask you a question as my wife on, on behalf of Jim that's just come to mind. Mm. Do you think at this point in our journey then that you are looking to explore more of the world or are you doing it because traveling the world as we're doing allows us to find out more about who you are and who we are? Ooh. Ooh. I need another coffee before I answer that one. Um, did you just dodge the question? I did, okay. yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I, I think with the situations that we've had go on over the last 11 years, I think we take now a lot for, for granted. We, we don't... But when you say a lot, do you mean a lot in the world or a lot that we're, we're able, able to, to handle? Do. A lot that we're able to handle without even now thinking about it. So maybe I am looking for more challenges all the time. Um, we're just like that guy said the other day about designing the route... Well, that's not the other day, sorry, the other year. Designing the route across Australia... And he said, how long have you been prepping? He'd been prepping for six months, almost no, 10 he'd been, months. he'd been prepping for two years and he had years? five months more prep to go. Okay. So let me just give you a sideways synopsis okay. on this story. We'd just gone from northeast um, Australia. Crossing the continent wasn't good enough for Lisa, and she did designs all the routes. She wanted to cross it by its longest axis, which is obviously northeast Australia, right across the centre down to the southwest. So we get down there, we're patting ourselves on the back, we're covered in dust, we look like, you know, a couple of homeless people. It's all red, it's just basically desert. And we get down there, we bump into these really cool guys on a KTM, and we have a little chat, and he finds that what we've just done, and he's like, oh, wow, and he's super excited. He said, well, I've been planning that for two years, I'd like to have a drink with you and get some information. I've got three or four months more of prep to go, and then I'll be ready to do exactly that. <laughs> Can I ask you, he said to Lisa, how long did it take you to, to prep for that journey and to and to do all the research. And she looked at him and, and very, very nicely, uh, she went, four days. <laughs> and you could just see this guy, he just tilted his head and he raised his eyebrows and they kind of looked around. And I think he was just looking for the hole to open up and swallow him. And then Lisa realized what what her words had meant to him. Um, it was totally, it wasn't intentional, but it was just that differing of perspectives in that, our, our life, in many ways, has become very tunnel-visioned. Our lives are about damage limitation, motorcycles, maintenance, health on the road, getting from point A to point B. Um, a lot of the superfluous stuff, the media, the, all the other distracting things, um, we, we don't have. And I think the media has a huge element to play. Um, again, we were just talking about this the other day going back, uh, uh, doing our research in the first few years whilst we were on the road, um, people saying, but wasn't, did, didn't you think that it was incredibly dangerous to, to go through that part of the world in 2004 where we were coming down through Mauritania into Mali on the northwest part of Africa? Um, and, you know, what was going on in, in the world at that time in, in that part of the world? Um, but we didn't really know much about what was going on at the time we were there because 
you didn't have the access to the internet uh, easily in those the world, areas. The world was connected, but not in the same way as it is today. I mean, these days, a sparrow farts in some far-flung country, and the world can find out about it, you know, a few seconds after it happens. You have to remember back when we started, um, Twitter hadn't been even conceived. There no was Facebook. there was no Facebook, hadn't <laughs> been thought about. Um, uh, Gmail was in beta. Skype hadn't hadn't been around. Um, so although the internet was 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 there, um, there wasn't the immediate access to to information in the same way there is today. I can go online right here, right now, find out what's happening out, you know, in some tiny village in the middle of, you know, somewhere small. That really wasn't as feasible or as easy uh, 11 years ago. And in some ways, ignorance is bliss. Um, one of my favorite qu quotes is uh, from an Argentinian rider who at the end of a very, very long journey, in fact, the world's longest ever motorcycle journey, which he did on a oh. Honda Goldwing. Every territory in every country of the world on a Honda Goldwing. At the end, someone said, but Emilio, why did you do it on a Goldwing? And he just looked back and he said, well, no one told me I couldn't. And it's amazing what you can achieve and what you can do if you haven't been told that, oh, but hang on a second, that isn't possible. It's also the, the information rather than opening up the world, I think, is closing the world down for people. Um, it's access to information, access to the news, uh, to trouble around the world. Uh, people read it and they get frightened. Well, people and, are now being given their opinions. Yeah. Most people's opinions are based on second or third information. And it, it's very frightening. People see the world out there, oh my God, that's frightening. Oh my God, you're, you're, you're sitting in a room in the south of Mexico. Aren't you frightened to have ridden through Mexico? Aren't you frightened to be there? Weren't you frightened to be, I don't know, in East Timor? Weren't you frightened to be on the border with Pakistan and Iran? It's, the world is a frightening place for people and they believe, a lot of people believe exactly what is on the news and unfortunately that's or not the, the case. Or, or, or the internet. <laughs> yeah. If you don't have an opinion, you may as well do yourself a service and make sure the opinion that you have, if it is absolute, is based on your own first-hand experience. Yeah, and a lot of times that's difficult, isn't it? Because we, we don't even know where we get a lot of our information. I mean, we often make references to something we've heard or read at one point. Um, yes. I mean, even subconsciously, it, it helps uh, create or curve our uh, opinions of things, for sure. On the last show, uh, I, I talked about, I did a little intro about um, the, about Grant at Horizon Sounds Limited is what it was. And, and I talked about that move from analog to digital, just what we're talking about right now. And I, I sort yeah. of made the, the flippant comment about, you know, back in the day, you had to go pick up a book and you had to flip to a page and, and you actually had to, first of all, probably go outside your house to begin with to, to do this. And I think that has a lot to do with what's been happening. I mean, we're all living through this age now of going from the analog to the digital in my mind. And, and I, I tend to agree with, with both of you, with your thought process, and I've spoke with my wife about this many times, about um, technology is great. It's amazing to have all this stuff at your fingertips, but it almost takes away 
a lot as much as it gives because you search for something and you find an answer and well, that's that. You didn't go anywhere. You didn't experience anything. If I want to learn about South America, I mean, I'll just look it up on the internet. Whereas what I should be doing is going there and, and actually seeing what it's like. Because as you said, Simon, uh, the, that I, I, my opinion is based on what I've read, for the, which comes from the, I mean, the veracity of the source. Uh, I don't know. It's the internet, right? Well, it is, and it's, it, it's, it's more than that. It's not just what people read, but it's the mindset they read it in. Um, typically these days, I mean, let's face it, most big websites these days, um, Google or, or search engines or anything else, um, they are they are content hungry. So people are sitting down and beautifully crafting pieces of information that are then, you know, thrown out via the internet. But it's important, it's important for people to realize that although the internet is useful, although Google is great, um, and although you have access to information, that what you read, just because you read it with a nice website, with a, a nice font, uh, it's very professional, does not make it absolute, does not make it fact. It's just someone's opinion. And as long as you read it as such, then it's useful. The minute you read it as absolute, then you're doing yourself a disservice because, well, your opinion's been formed just because you were given it. But that's that's true not only of, you know, going out and, and crossing the world. Let's face it, most people can't do that. Um, but just stepping out your own front door, um, the fact that somebody else doesn't like the person next door because they were somehow upset doesn't mean that... That person's that, a bad person. No. I mean, they, they become a bad person as and when they intentionally set out... Uh, to, to hurt you on an individual basis. Um, it's just, I just think it's important that we all develop our own, our own opinions and thoughts based on real first-hand experience rather than just dumbing ourselves down and accepting that somebody else's opinion suddenly becomes ours. I'm assuming that this opinion that you have now, of opinions, <laughs> so to speak, has been, <laughs> has been formed over traveling. I mean, because th- this is something I hear with people who are travelers. Uh, I hear this a lot. It's, it seems to be a big thing. And it's it's fr- it's uh, a view from someone who has actually been to the place and seen the landscape to appear different than what they were told it would look when they arrived. It's, it's interesting. I think I think a lot of the opinions of the travelers I've met are actually born out of some kind of frustration in as much as prime example, Lisa and I, um, going back to what you were asking earlier, you know, we were, we were corporate people. We were, you know, we were very different to what we, you know, we didn't have a, a skill set that made this journey easier for us than it did for anybody else. And we certainly didn't have the money when we set out 11 years ago, it was for possibly a maximum of 18 months. But what we've seen and what everybody else seems to to concur with is that the world is a far better, happier, safer, more generous place. Um, yes, there are bad people everywhere um, and, and bad things can happen. And you can't naively just wander around expecting, you know, love and light to, to shower down on you. It's about you know, risk management and using best judgment and common sense. Um, but I think a lot of the frustration I hear is that Lisa and I feel that man, if we can do this, um, as naive and as green as, as, as we were um, and experience some of the things we have, then it really is possible for anybody to a lesser or greater degree. Um, and it's just a shame that what you do see uh, coming through from the media, and I'm not knocking the media as a whole, it's just a real shame that the reporting isn't balanced. 
there's another flip side to uh, the, the the internet and access to information and ease, etc. Um, it's also creating another side of travel in that it is making people think that, oh, I can do this, I don't need much experience, I can go out and buy all the stuff that I need and that will enable me to cross this desert. I've read a book, I've read somebody's story, I've looked it on the internet, I can see that the map online shows that there's a road there. Um, Everybody else is doing it, it can't be that it difficult. It can't be that difficult. And this is also a very, very dangerous um, parts to get into, I think. Um, I think people are relying on the information on the internet. There's a road there. Oh, I can do it. This guy did it. I can do it. And not doing a little bit more detailed research and getting themselves into hellish situations. Um, as Simon says, we weren't um, expert uh, sand riders, desert riders, mechanics, anything when we started out. Um, but we did do a lot of research. Um, and so Hang on, do you mean research on the internet or did we actually try to connect with people connect, that we knew had actually been to those connect places? Connect with people, yeah. Connecting with people um, and getting their experiences and their knowledge. Um, the reason this is in my mind at the moment is because I'm just uh, rereading a little bit of the desert section that we did and have been online and just read about a whole bunch of people getting into a predicament and some guys dying of dehydration on in a, in a part of the, uh, the desert, which actually was just on the outskirts of, of the Sahara, not actually in desert proper. Um, and so it's, I don't really know what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say that there has to be a bit of common sense applied too. You can do a lot diligence. of the research, yeah, and well, it's, it's just the, the media, the media and the internet, especially whether it's ADV Rider. There's a whole slew of websites and access points, and it is very easy for people to believe. Well, hang on two seconds. If all these people are doing it, and this is a subconscious process, man, it really can't. It really can't be that difficult. Um, ever since you and Charlie set off, which I think was a fantastic venture. Um, they they did they did make adventure motorcycling for want of a better term um, almost fashionable, um, and I I think also this is what brings us back to the original question was what does adventure mean, and a lot of the people presume adventure is buying a KTM a BMW a KLR whatever it may be having a look at a map and, and heading off and setting off because you know what I just I just read some ride reports from or, fifty guys who have just done this and they all loved it and it was a great time or downloading. A GPS track log. I've got the GPS track log here. I'm, I'm good okay. to go. Um, it's a it, it's a very adventure dangerous has, situation. Adventure has teeth. It can bite, and you know, jump on the adventure bandwagon, but just make sure that you've got some, you know, a plan B, and make sure you've got a skill set or a a get out of jail free card, um, because you've got to make sure that as and when adventure right, you know, adventure rises its uglier head and bites you on the ass, make sure you can you can deal with it. Um, because trust me, again, from experience, it's at those times when you're forced to deal with it that you find out whether or not you've got the physical and mental reserves that you hoped you were going to have. 
way back before you started the trip, and, and we talked about what your life was like, the old life, I called it, um, you had, um, you thought of an idea, uh, obviously, of doing the, the motorcycle trip. Can you tell us what brought you to that uh, decision to go and, and how it became a definite plan? Um, well, as we both said... My <laughs> wife told me. <laughs> yeah, I told him. That's it. Um, as, as we said before, we were very much in the corporate, normal corporate life with all the nice shiny things that you think you need. Um, and um, we did have a very, very bad uh, period of time um, where Simon's mother diagnosed with cancer. A very good friend of ours also, um, while she was pregnant, was diagnosed with cancer. And that was a shock because mm. it's not that you accept your parents can get ill, but when it's somebody the same age as you, it, it really hits home. Mm-hmm. Um, my father had a quadruple heart bypass, and then Simon uh, was uh, recovering then from a very bad accident. Um, and it makes you sit back and and think. And we'd we'd always enjoyed um, our our riding. On our second wedding anniversary, uh, we took our motorcycle uh, licenses. I already could ride, um, but I'm of the age where there was no need to take a real motorcycle test. But let's be clear, for 93, <laughs> you're looking pretty good. Um, so I thought, yeah, we better do that properly. Um, and so we'd been riding for quite a few years, doing the normal summer trip and the odd crazy winter trip. Um, we weren't going to have a family. We were searching for more. Um, and we both came up with this idea, why don't we take a career break? Of six. It was three months. Was it initially. three months? And then we said six months. Why not six months? Um, and I knew my job would give me that time off. Um, and then we went, six months, well, why not do nine? And then the nine came to a year. Well, if we're going to be doing a year and we're going to have to uh, organize everything and rent out our house and put things in storage, uh, etc., why don't we do it for longer? Why don't we make it the adventure of a lifetime and have a whole 18 months? 18 and months. 18 months away from a job not only was incredibly intimidating and, and scary, um, but 18 months away from a job was an eternity. Yeah. And so that's what we decided that we would do. But we both had a period of time where we were thinking on it. We didn't make a decision, that's it, yep, we're going. It was a period of time when we said, well, let's both go away and it have was, a thing. It was two years. It was two years from the moment the idea got mentioned. Mm. And then it was a, Lisa and I sat down and said, well, look, this is a pretty big decision. So I tell you what, we'll, we'll come back to the breakfast table in one month's time. But in that, in that next 30 days let's neither of us discuss it with the other person. So we're not influencing one another. So one person isn't pushing the agenda. And 30 days later, we were sat across our breakfast table. We had the yes, no conversation and to our amazement, but, but thrill. Both of us said, okay, I think, I think this is what I want to do for the next 18 months. But it was also then a period of, of planning. Um, you know, you can't just get up and ride away. Um, well, you, you can if you don't have any responsibilities, but we actually had quite a few responsibilities, a house, etc. And you've got to be practical. Um, was, you, it, was it Sam Manicom, um, a good friend of ours, who said to us, um, this is before we really got to know him, he said, for every year you plan to be away, you need to spend one year prepping. And at the time I was thinking, good Lord, that just sounds ridiculous. Um, now being on the other side of the fence, it, c- it couldn't have been truer. 
Yeah, especially the onset, um, you know, plan planning everything from scratch. Now we just do it as we go. But I would imagine percentage-wise that still works out true. The amount of planning that we have to the amount of, of actually doing, I'd imagine it still works bit, out that yeah, way. Yeah, it's a little bit different when you're, when you're planning to leave. When you're planning it's to leave. It's not just the yeah. next day. It's, it's taking it's everything. your life, mortgage, banks the money you owe to the guide and the pool hall, the I mean, five bucks, make, Making family. sure you've got power of attorney so that if you both get killed on the road, somebody can sign your documents at your home, uh, making your will out. Uh, I mean, all of these things that people don't really want to think about. Having um, uncomfortable conversations about mortality with parents and friends that people just don't have because, you know, they don't face up to these risks. But the, the, the whole... Going back to your question, because I know we go off on one, really. Um, we we had a lot of things building up. There were a lot of frustrations, a lot of times where we would sit and look at one another and go, the person that you thought would never be ill is ill, i.e. a parent, um, a very close friend. What are we doing and why are we doing it? Um, Suddenly, all the old cliches were coming out of the box, and rather than sounding like cliches, they were suddenly sounding like resounding truths. Life yeah. is not a dress rehearsal. Yeah, all that, only, all that kind of stuff. You only live once. Um, all, You're talking all, about before you left, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All of these things come into your mind, and initially, you just go, "Fuck, yeah, well, you only live once." Ha ha. Um, but it's all true. I'd rather regret the things that I have done than the regret, regret the things I'd wish I'd done now the opportunity has passed me by. Um, you know, we, we are walking cliches and we validate a lot of this stuff. Uh, and for us, it works. For other people, maybe not. Um, but for good, uh, for good or for worse, we've lived more in the last 11 years than I ever imagined I would live in a lifetime. And anyone that's heard us interviewed before uh, will recognize that particular comment, but it's still so true. And I'm still, I'm still amazed by it. I'm, I still look back and I can honestly say that I don't have any regrets. And that's both the good and the bad. That's, that's everything included in there. If I had to do it all again, I, I would do, even knowing the bad stuff, even knowing the more you know, the, the painfully difficult stuff. I wouldn't look forward to it, but it's been worth it for the other raw life experiences that we've been privileged enough to experience along this journey. And not everyone will uh, decide to drop everything and live the life that you have, but if they can get something from that, and you say you, you know you're you're sort of living cliches or walking cliches. I mean, it's it's those. Um, it's those stories out there that we like to hear and we like to read that helps us reflect on our own life. And I think if people take some of that uh, information and put it, uh, you know, into some thought process about their own life, I think that's, you know, sort of a, a great thing that you've done. Yeah, I mean, you, you can't go wrong, you know, every moment of every day having this stuff run through your brain. But even if it's just a few seconds a day, I think I think what, what saddens us, what we totally understand is that a lot of people that we speak to say, well, you know, Wow, I, I just couldn't do what you do. And what they what they really mean is that their the idea of making the sacrifices that we've made to just see it's just an alien concept. Most people incorrectly presume that Lisa and I can afford to do this. Um, and what what people generally explain to us um, after they've got to know us a little bit is that 
oh, well, I just thought somebody was paying for all this. I just thought oh, you had there, a bank there was, a, there was a term in Australia which we didn't really understand, and it was, uh, you, guy, you guys are doing it easy. And we were like, what does What's that, that mean? mean? Until one day we actually heard that. We asked a friend, well, what does that mean? And he said, well, you know, you, you, you've got sponsors. Somebody's paying you to do this. You get given, um, you get given you the get bikes. You get given stuff. Bikes are given to you. And we're like, what? what? <laughs> and so we had to explain, you know, no, the bikes are ours. We bought and paid for them. Uh, we now do have some sponsorship from companies. But that was after we'd been on the road for five years. Most people who, who go out on a trip are finished by five years. Um, there are there are no financial sponsors and having having equipment like, you know, we have some great equipment and it's absolutely fantastic. But the reality is that if there's no food in the belly and there's no fuel in the gas, if the wheels aren't turning, no matter how shy or cool you're looking, the journey isn't happening. Um, and so it was, it was, it was an interesting thing. To, and when you, when you talk to people who say, well, I wish I could do what you know, you've done, trying to get across, well, actually, whether it's a motorcycle journey or whether it's starting a family or changing the job that you've hated for the last couple of years or taking a business forward, um, the most important thing isn't the idea because they are a dime to the dozen, but it's actioning the idea, making something happen, not being afraid to get out of your comfort zone take that first path and and see where that takes you. Um, you know, we're, we're in a situation where you know, both getting older and... I'm um, not. I've decided not to. You're not you're no, going to be Take the first step, getting outside the comfort zone and, and actioning something and be willing to be willing to face up to the fact that you have to make some degree of sacrifice and commitment in order to do the things that you decided you want to do. Well, yeah, I was going to say about, about our... You know, we had one guy, I'd love to do uh, what, what, what you do, but it's impossible for me, it's easy for you. And I'm like, what? Don't like that. So I, I called him on it, and um, he said, well, you know, unlike you guys, I need my pension. And I'm like, yeah, so do we. Why? What? He said, why do you think we don't need a pension? He said, well, because of the money you've got. And we, we explained, explained very, very simply, everything, everything we have ever worked for in our previous lives, saved, borrowed, pulled together, owned, stashed away for a rainy day. Everything has gone, which to most people sounds absolutely crazy. But there is nothing left to sell. There's not a jewelry box in a in a in a bank somewhere. Um, there is no pension. There's there are there are no there are no accounts. We can always sell your body. I can sell my third kidney. Right. No, I was thinking other things. <laughs> I'm not doing that again. That was just nasty. No, there are limits. <laughs> He's going to have to edit that out, isn't he? <laughs> but yeah, as long as you're willing to make the, the commitment and the sacrifice, anything is possible. And that's one of the reasons we're sitting in a hot concrete box in Mexico. Um, we're trying to... You promised me a five-star hotel. Good yeah. Lord. We're trying to just think of the next stage. There has to be a next stage. Um, and there has to be a good reason too. Yeah, um, that doesn't mean the next stage is oh okay everything's over and we're going back to the UK. I can't see that as a uh, as a as an option. Um, but there has to be a next stage. Well, we've, well, we've, been, we've been we've been here now for for a few months, uh, and it's absolutely killing us not travelling just because it's so alien. But 
you know, we've to ride the world.com, which is our website, the numeral to ride the world.com, was set up initially for friends and family. Um, we were never expecting to get 1.4 million visitors, and it's actually set up 12 years ago now, wasn't yeah. It? So, we're overhauling the entire website because rea the reality is that you know, it's buckling under the weight of the visitors, which is fantastic. We're having to learn how to do all this stuff. We've got some, some great friends helping us with the, the coding parts of it, but we are so desperate. Um, and so passionate about sharing the photographs, the diary, to anybody that's interested that the site itself has to be better organized, it has to be easily navigable. And we have to sit down and work out, okay, well, you know, in, in, in a couple of years' time, which is what it might be, when this journey comes to its finale, what do we then do? So we're literally just taking a little bit of time to, to lay some foundations and work out a couple of uh, ideas um, so that we don't just finish this journey and then stand around with our hands in our pockets, twiddling our thumbs, going, okay, well, what do we do now? And more importantly, who are we now? If we're not traveling, who are we? It was bliss, I'm sure, at the, at the start. But at what point did you decide to keep going? What, when did this trip that started out that you said originally was uh, three months and sort of expanded to 18 months, at what point did you decide to keep going? And at that point, was it just a, yes, we're just going to go forever? We said about 18 months, two years, that would be our uh, length of time on the road. Yeah, 18 months to two years. Um, but we were still going to do the 122 countries and all continents in that period of time. Um, Do you think that was a little overly ambitious? I think it was, a, yeah, a little ambitious, <laughs> really, yeah. Um, and we got to South Africa for the second time because we, we came down the west and then a little bit up the east coast before returning to South Africa. Um, and that was the point of no return, I think. It was either, right, we're done, this is two years, let's go home, are we finished? Um, or carry on. And from South Africa, it was a nice stepping point over to South America. But were we going to carry on indefinitely? Um, no. I think we, again, thought that we could have another couple of years. Uh, well, Simon thought one year and I thought two. Because, again, South America is huge, massive. And I don't think either of us really realized just how much riding I was, was clueless. I, thought, I know I, you were clueless I, about I, Brazil. I figured that after traveling for two years, having survived Africa, having been through what was then these unimaginable life experiences, I incredibly naively presumed that, you know, South America was going to be kind of a, a cheaper second cousin and we were going to be there for six months and yep. head up to the USA. I couldn't have been more wrong if I tried. So... The timing of things, I think we said, yeah, a couple of years, that, that should be fine. We'll be ready by then. We really will be ready. We had to make some... Um, I mean, who wants to live in the tent for longer than four years, for heaven's sake? Me. We do, apparently. Um, we had to make some uh, big decisions at that second year uh, point in time because we had kept the house and we were renting it. Um, and it was at that point that I had to call my father, who was then my power of attorney, our power of attorney, and say sell the house and being the father that he was he didn't say I think you're bloody ridiculous I think you're stupid I think you're um should be put in a mental home he, he just went are you sure and then my mother said we thought this might happen and there was no there was no other discussion are you sure but it was a pretty yeah. big I mean and you, but you and I decision. you and I spent a few months talking mm. about this and how would we feel without this safety net because in you know in everyone's idea everyone's head i guess 
your home, whether it's rented or whether it's purchased, is is your is your bolt hole. It's your sanctuary. It's where you go when everything kind of goes wrong. It's your okay, back back to base. And the idea of not having that initially was was terrifying. It was. But then also when it it did happen, so that that took place and it was sold. Um, it was almost a sigh of relief when it did happen. It, our last ties, apart from family, um, we were then free. Yeah, the 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 weight of the responsibility. Uh, I think you know the the responsibilities that we don't realise that are all weighing on our shoulders. Um, I wasn't expecting to feel as relieved as I was. I was expecting a lot more, a lot more angst, and it didn't come. I think we'd had that angst when we when we left initially. That was a very big, um, not shock to the system, but a very big moment. Probably more so for me than you. I know that you felt relief in a way when we closed the the doors on the house and left, and I I felt excitement, but I also felt panic. Really, shoot terror. <laughs> I think I think after the house sold, and after we then crossed from Africa to South America, I think one of the things that instantly surprised us both and caught us off guard was how little it changed uh, in terms of the house is sold. So you're waiting for the skies to fall down, and nothing happened. We carried on breathing in and out. We carried on twisting the throttle. We carried on little, making photographs. A um, little bit more financial security. It did. Um, it took some pre- it took some pressure yeah. off our shoulders, and. You know, again, going back to the cliches, we suddenly began to realise, um, you know what, as, in, as individuals, we are not the things we own. Um, whether I owned the house, whether I didn't own the house, I, I was still Simon, you know, good, bad, warts and all. We were still the same people. Um, and well, nothing had changed. We did an interview when we were in South America, um, when it was the BBC came out, and... Go on, say BBC in an English accent. BBC. Darling. Darling. Um, and they asked in the interview, so how much longer do you think you'll be on the road? And I just picked a number out of the sky. Um, and I said, oh, I, I think we might be on the road for a, another five years. And then unfortunately, <laughs> your mum saw it. And we had this telephone call from her. Five years, five years. When were you going to let me know that it was going to be five years? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was kind of weird. It was kind of. Like I, w- I would like to have seen the look on Simon's face when you said that. He he's probably looking at you, going, "What? <laughs> We're doing what?" No, no, we've been together far too long. I, uh, my face, my face just—I think I probably just lifted my eyebrows and internally thought, <laughs> "Cool." <laughs> and as it works, I've been on the road another eight mm. since then. I must be very bad at math. Really? I was just going to say that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So after traveling by motorcycle or two motorcycles for over 11 years without stopping, tell us what a day in the life is like for the two of you now. I think, I just, I just, whenever I get asked that question, I, I seem to remember Asia. Very, very early starts in the morning. So 4.30, 4.30 kind of pulling your brain together um, because you've got to be on the road by, by 5, 5.30 because it just gets so but intensely I, I hot. Always, always for me, I, I, I dread the first bit with Simon saying, hot, you're in the tent, you're packing up. And invariably, I'm the one that's packing up inside the tent because I'm a lot smaller. Simon's pretty tall. 
and it's easier for him to get outside. You're my favourite hobbit. And, and, and chuck things out to him once they're packed. But certain things have got to be packed when they're in the tent. Um, so usually my day starts off with me being in a sauna and I'm absolutely cranky, cranky, <clears throat> dripping with sweat, throwing things out at Simon so he can put them on the bikes. Um, and then I'm already sodden even before I've got my motorcycle kit What's on. the last thing you think about at night and what's the first thing you think about in the morning? Oh, uh, yeah, you're always thinking about the bikes. It's just like a, a baby, I presume. Is the baby all right? Oh, the bike's all right. My mum calls them the grandkids, and I said, yeah. why do you call them the grandkids? She said, well, they're like children, your motorcycles. I said, in what way? She said, well, you love them, and they're expensive. <laughs> the, the, the first thing we do in the morning is to look out and see the bikes. They're always close by us, um, and last thing at night. Um, they're part of our family now. Um, we look at the GPS, we look at the map, we look at where we're trying to get to based on the yeah, agenda so we have been. Yeah, so Then we just know, set out on the road. Sometimes we don't bother having anything, which I know goes against the grain for a lot of people. Oh, I must have that first uh, breakfast. I must have that first coffee. Um, we're very bad. Well, the, other, the reality is it might, take you, it might take you, you know, say five minutes to cook something up and to eat it, maybe 10. But you've then got to wait half an hour for everything to cool down before you can pack it away. So in some cases, it's actually just easier to, to pack it all up, jump on the bike, get half an hour's worth of riding done, maybe an hour, and then pull off and stop because whilst you're having that first coffee, whilst you're having a bite to eat in a small cafe somewhere, you get to meet the people. You get to have a conversation. Unless, of course, you're in the middle of nowhere and then there is nowhere to pull off and have a coffee. Um, um, but just sometimes, You're thinking about Mongolia. Yeah, I'm just thinking about Mongolia. But then you just pull off and have some water. Um, so... Often you lose a lot of weight too, which is quite good. Then um, there's just riding, just carrying on riding. Uh, we, we use an intercom system we have since the beginning of our trip. It's, it's changed, we're now on a different system. Obviously, 11 years has gone on technology wise. Um, I am now feeling very Star Trek. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, we don't often communicate. It might be the dead animal in the road, truck in the middle of the road. Large wash of sand that looks normal but is in fact fesh, fesh, don't go anywhere near it, yeah, otherwise you're going to kind of fall but in the hole. Chit-chat doesn't normally happen. Normally you're concentrating on the riding or you're just too damn hot. Um, and so when we pull off and stop on the side of the road, road somewhere, um, that's when we get to have a chat about where we're going to stop. What we've seen, how we've ridden, what we've smelt, the amount of dust covering the exposed parts of our skin, the heat, the humidity, um, the amazing wildlife that one of us saw that the other one didn't perhaps, or the crazy or wonderful piece of driving that we experienced from other road users, um, and just managing your expectations of the day versus what you actually experienced. I think I think both of us are still surprised how how marvelled we are. I honestly thought a small part of me would have been, I don't want to use the word bored, but a little more blasé, and, and it hasn't happened. Maybe that's why we're still travelling. Probably, I, I would say so. There's always something to wonder at. Um, and then, really, just from a, a certain time of the day, uh, thinking about where you're going to be stopping. Now, obviously, I've looked at the map, I've done a little research. Sometimes it's just looking at the map and running my finger along the route that we're going to be taking, whether it be road or, or a piece somewhere. 
um, and guesstimating as to the distance that we might make that day. And guesstimating what facilities are going to be there, because ultimately your point A to point B is dictated to based on not so much your need for food, but your need for water. So if we know we're in the middle of nowhere, then we'll have to make sure that we've already got the water with us. And we know we're going to be stopping in the middle of nowhere, therefore we'll have to have everything ready there with us. Or we're heading towards a small town, village, or a city. Um, and do we camp? Do we camp before? Do we go through the city, camp out? Do we go and look for a small room somewhere? What will security be like? And often you don't know that until you're approaching the area and you make decisions whilst you're in that situation. But are all the decisions that we make based on our mental ability to calculate or, are, or do we A use... lot of it is, is how does it feel? Okay. How, how, when you're riding through the outskirts of a town or city, how does it feel? Well, even, if it, even if it looks absolutely fine? Even if it looks absolutely fine. We use our senses, we use our, 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 our gut instinct a lot, lot more. And I think that that's something that is developed during the years. I think a lot of people in their day-to-day -day lives, their normal lives going into the city. I mean, I used to go into London and work. You, you, you have to cut off those senses. You have to become an isolated little box. Um, because if you were to take in absolutely everything, it would drive you crazy. You'd go loopy. Um, listening to everybody's conversations, the noise, the, the amount of traffic, the, it's just too much on you. You have to isolate. Sensory overload. Yeah, sensory overload. So, so we attune ourselves to, I think think, so. to, to think through everything. We, yeah. we, we try to rationalize um, situations and scenarios. And sometimes when that happens, we just completely ignore what the telltale signs yeah the gut instinct yeah. which says i can't work out why there's no rhyme or reason but wow this doesn't feel good or you're looking at people's body language the locals body language um the expression on their faces um everything has to be taken into account and and it might some other person might not recognize it but we now work very very well together that we can just look at one another and we know exactly what the other is thinking it doesn't need to be spoken out loud in fact sometimes you can't speak it out loud but you just know we need to leave we need to move on this is not a good area um and we make our decision at the end of the day based on that a lot of the time i think there's a lot to be said for for instincts that we in the westernized world choose to choose to ignore believing that we can you know think through and rationalize situations and, and don't need to occasionally. And one of the best things at the end of the day is if we set up camp, I love just setting up cooking. I'll cook on, on the floor or the back of one of the bikes. Um, and for me, the whole prepping and cooking, I always try to cook properly. Uh, you, you can't survive on noodles and tuna for 11 years. Um, I always try to cook a proper meal with the produce, with local produce that I've been able to pick if up or, food, or yeah. carry, or dry stock if there's nothing, and sit back and just absorb the evening. You might have locals with you. They might come suddenly appear out of nowhere and come and sit by you. But often that doesn't, 
you know, you just don't need to sit and converse. You can't, but, you know, you, you, you acknowledge that they're there. They're happy just to sit and you be their entertainment for the evening. But would you, but would you say that for us as a, as a couple, as a riding couple, one of the biggest thrills is actually not knowing exactly how your day's going to work out, mm. not knowing exactly where you're going to be, the lack of routine? We're often asked about how... How do you plan your day? How do you know where you're going to stop? How do you know where you're going to get gas? How do you know where you're going to get food? How many miles will you do that day? Um, and we can't answer those questions because we don't plan like that anymore. Well, it's not that, it's not that we, don't, we don't plan like that. You it's can't. That we understand that yeah. that level of control simply you isn't possible. You have got that level of control. You cannot put out a list, day one, we're going to do 380 miles, day two, we're going to stop here and only do 40. Day. It doesn't work like that. You have to guesstimate, make a, an average mileage. Uh, you don't know what the roads are going to be like. How many miles do you do a day? Well, it, it does, it's not the miles that are important. It's what's underneath your tyres that's important. But how, how can you not know? Well, you say, well, anything I don't know... I. You know, I'll, I'll guess some other stuff, but some of the stuff that doesn't work out based on the ambitions I had at the beginning of the month, we then have to rely on our ability to think on our feet. And we have a supreme amount of confidence in our ability to do that. Um, but that confidence in ourselves that's developed in the last 11 years allows us to live in a particular way that I think a lot of people would find very intimidating. And we did uh, initially. But we've realized that as individuals, we're a lot more capable than we could have possibly imagined. And that allows us a degree of freedom that was before unimaginable. It sounds like part of it is giving over to uh, the fact that things happen randomly and that you're not in control of this space anymore. I think a lot of us like to go through our lives, like, you know, knowing, you know, what time we're doing this and when we're getting this done and how far we're going. And I, I, I think exactly. what it is from by the sounds of what you're saying is that's what it is, realizing you're, you're not in control. And maybe it's a misconception that we have a false way of living that uh, we think we're in control in, in sort of the Western world. Yeah, I think I think I would agree. Uh, but again, you know, I'm listening. I'm listening to the words I'm uttering now, um, and this this is not something that I would have spoken about or even realised 11, 11 years ago. Um, that not only are we not in as in as much control as we think we are, um, setting up those setting up those rigid constraints of control actually hold us back um, because because they begin to dictate. Um, our lives, um, and this is a far deeper conversation than the one that I imagined we were going to have. But it's it's true nonetheless. We give ourselves these very rigid set of control restraints and expectations, um, with the idea that we're going to break out and live this amazing life. You know, we've got more time or got more money, and, and so on and so forth. And as I keep saying to friends of ours, you know, we're all getting older. You've only ever got less time, not more time. Um, and in terms of you know waiting to take that bike journey or start that business or that family when you've got more money, how much is enough? Because if you're going into the unknown, if you're, if you're stepping outside your comfort zone and you say, well, you know what? I'm going to do that when I've got 5,000 bucks. But when you've got 5,000 bucks, you'll be thinking, you know what? I would feel a lot happier if I had 10. And once you've got 10, well, I, I think I need to wait a little bit longer. I think if I had 15, it really is about you know, setting yourself an agenda and a goal, taking that first step and realizing that you are capable of working stuff out as you're moving through life. You don't have to have all the answers. I was going to say one of the things that has changed 
dramatically since we first started off. Obviously, in the first six months, it was very much like vacation time. It was very difficult to get our head around the fact that it wasn't a vacation. It was it was going to be our lives, even though it was only going to be for 18 months to two years. Um, so the first six months, it was very strange. You know, we did everything that you would do on a vacation, and we were just having a, a huge laugh. And then when we crossed over to Africa, things got a little bit more serious. Because um, we, we felt to. wildly in our comfort felt, zone yes. and overwhelmed. Well, we did learn ever such a lot. I think it, our, our decision all the time was to do what we considered and still consider the toughest continent, Africa, first. first. Do that first. And really it was... It <laughs> Baptism was, by fire. Yeah, throwing ourselves in at the deep end. But I'm still so, so pleased that we did it that <laughs> way. Bricks in our pockets. Yeah. Uh, we learned hell of a lot very quickly. Um, and I think it's, it's had the opposite um, uh, reaction to, I think, how people thought that it may. Um, it's made us a lot more relaxed about the later years. I think doing the hardest first um, made us sit back and relax about the other scenarios. Um, because right, you look back and you go, wow, if I can get through that, if, if I, I can do that, that with so little experience and skill, yeah. based on what I now know, this, this current problem or difficulty is, is, is workable. When you were mentioning about camping and, you know, you go into a town or a city and you're, you're going with your gut feeling, how do you find a campsite if you decide to camp? Because I think that's the most, that's your riskiest position is, is camping. You're probably going to sleep somewhere where you don't have permission. How do you go about that? Um, if we're going to a city, I've usually tried to do a bit of research and it'll often be books. I still like books. I'm that old fashioned. Um, or... Okay, but hang on. At, at the USA, there's no books available. You're going into a city. Would you, would you camp or would you go to a cheap mm-hmm. motel room? Or we go on other travelers' recommendations. Speak to the people on the road if you see them. Um, in cities, invariably we will look for some kind of security first for the bikes, and that means getting a room. Um, but in most countries, we're talking about a room with some kind of parking that can be seen from the room for $5. We're not talking about US and Canadian standards where you're paying a minimum of 49 to 69 bucks for a, for a Motel 6. Um, we're talking about the majority of the world. Um, but we tend to avoid campsites. Um, in cities. Well, no, generally. Uh, campsites, outside, well, outside, yeah. I mean, the, the reason that sounds Canada. weird, because so if you it. now say, oh, we tend to avoid campsites, that sounds really strange. The reason being is that the majority of the world does not have campsites. So Europe, yes. Parts of South America, yes. North America, that's it. The rest of the world doesn't have campsites. As, as we understand it. Um, so you're looking for an area to put your tent up. And I think it's classified as wild camping, isn't it? Or free camping. Um, and that's the rest of the world, really. You want to make sure that you cannot be seen from the main track or main route that you've been using. Um, so you have to go off, uh, off into the bush somewhere. Um, you then the have secu- to- security. People, people imagine from, from the conversations we've had mm. that the security risks 
are going to be in Africa, prime example, you know, um, well, the wildlife. The reality is that the risks nine times out of 10 are actually drawing the, right, the wrong type of attention and, and people. It's people. So if you just pass the village and it's getting to dusk, you don't want to go through that village and then set up your tent on the other side because they know you're going to be stopping. And it's not that they're going to be looking for trouble or to come out and rob you. They're going to go, oh, wow, they're going to be interesting. I want to go and see what they are. And they'll come out and look for you just so they can sit and look at you. All it then takes is one person who may have come out to look at you out of interest to suddenly realize, wow, that's a really nice machete they've got on the back of the bike. I don't have one. I think I'm going to, I'm going to take that. It's opportunistic. It's just weighing up the, the risks. So do you, you plan to stop before a village? So you've then got to take into account, uh, are you seeing a lot of tracks? Are there animal tracks? Are there lots of, of, of bicycle tracks? Then that will be, oh, there's going to be a village coming soon. Are you seeing the smoke of the, the fires that they're cooking on? There's going to be a village soon. If you do stop, make sure that you're not in the middle of these animal tracks. There's a watering hole somewhere nearby. You don't want to be on a main crossroads of, of where the hippos go to get their, their nightly bathing. Um, <laughs> you know, it, 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 the spores, it, it just, you become, it becomes natural. We don't even know that we're doing it now. Um, and it's second nature, I suppose, to look for these kind of things. But initially, that's what we... Initially, it was, it was, it was conscious. Do. Yeah, purposely. Um, other than that, it's, it's, um, if we're lucky enough to be uh, in South America and find a, some camping area just on the outskirts of Mendoza in the wine region, yeah, we'll go camping there because it'll be right by a vineyard so we can sample the wine. Then we're not really worried about security at all. <laughs> now, I'm not sure which one of you had said this, but in an article for Adventure Bike Rider magazine, um, one or both of you said that it's becoming more difficult to travel. Can you explain that? Yeah, um, I think the restrictions, um, certainly in, in terms of the restrictions that countries are placing on travel in terms of visas, paperwork, it's now a lot more prohibitive. Uh, there's a lot more red tape um, now than there was 10 years ago, whether it's getting a carnet de passage, which is effectively a passport for your vehicle, whether it's just trying to get visas. Um, the costs are going up, and when one country falls out with a neighbor or with somebody else, they say, well, hey, you know, instead of having a three-month, you know, gratis visa, you've now only got, you know, 10 days or you've only got 30 days. Um, so in which case, that country then applies the same restrictions in reverse it's just although although the access to information is eased up um the actual hoops you're being asked to jump through in order to be able to travel are just uh, increasing it's also that a lot of countries that never experienced travelers before are now getting those travelers not on an infrequent basis but almost on a regular basis so they're becoming very savvy in what is required paperwork-wise, even on the smaller borders. Uh, I mean, we would approach a border in, in the middle of Western Africa somewhere, and it would just be um, a barrel and a piece of 
rope crossed to a stick. And we would and be the helmet-wearing Martians. Yeah, and, and they've no idea what to do. And they look at your passport upside down and write something in it and wave you on. Um, these days, is becoming less and less that you find small borders like that. Um, they're well aware these days as to what a carne is and how to use it. We had to show people how to use the carne and what it was and everything is becoming automated. We were the first in crossing in Nicaragua, wasn't it, on their computerized system uh, eight years ago. Um, and we, I think they hated us because we walked in, they were so proud, the officials were there, it was the opening day for this computerized system. The same one the US has where you put your fingerprints on, yeah. it just scans your eye, and we were the very first very ones. First. And so we put over our passports and they looked, and they tried to trace, and they looked, nope, we didn't exist. The United Kingdom didn't exist on their system, so we said Great Britain. Great Britain didn't exist. They could not find, it spent an hour and a half We tried the British Isles. Uh, that didn't exist. Um, and there was queues building up, but they had started this process with us and they were going to finish it. And in the end, we found it under some weird, weird terminology that they had used. And we kind of advised them that they needed to change that. But this, these days, we were talking to friends that have just come up from Nicaragua and they said, oh, very simple, very easy process, nothing, nothing uh, complicated there, straight in, straight out. Um, and this is how it is changing. Um, border guards around the world are becoming more familiar with travelers as travel as the world opens up for travelers everywhere. The majority of people now, um, the world over, irrespective as to whether they're affluent or dealing with poverty, everybody has a phone and a lot of these people also have, have smartphones. So the access to information, to the internet, to Google has also increased dramatically. Um, and it, 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 it just changes things. It, it almost makes it sound like a contradiction because I said in and out very quickly. But they're also very, very aware as to the paperwork. So whereas you could maybe, I don't know, fob somebody off with some inaccuracies. Not that we ever did that, of course. No, um, no, no, no British. Um, you can't do that these days. But well, they, you can. It's just, there's just less chance at working. exact paperwork. Yeah. And if you don't have it, then tough. And visas, getting visas these days, it can be very complicated process. Um, as we know, because we're trying to get our visa for the United States. Yes, we are. It's another one of those examples, I think, where technology, um, at least you have to ask yourself the questions. Yes, it's great. It does some great things. But is it really making our life any better? Absolutely. I mean, one of the biggest things that we're dealing with right now is the fact that when we left the UK, neither of us had taken a photograph. Well, at least we've taken snapshots. I'd never clicked a camera you know, which is a, a polar opposite to the fact that we now describe ourselves as, as professional photographers. But when we left, we had we had this gargantuan digital um, photographic camera with a whopping 3.2 megapixels. That was it. That, that's all. That, that's all we had. Um, and it was I, the best on the market at the time. And I now look at I now look at not only what we're carrying to be able to better record our journey but I'm marrying that with the expectations of people in terms of the quality and the depth and the color they expect to see of how you're presenting your journey. So we've now got a couple of digital uh, SLR cameras. We're very, very, very grateful to have um, Nikon as a main 
photographic equipment sponsor. We have we have a handheld HD video camera. We've got GoPros. We've got you know we've got we've got almost three quarters of just one pannier just just to carry the the digital devices that we're now using to record and to document our journey. But again, this is a thing that changes journeys. Um, people setting out on trips these days, everyone has to have a blog. Well, what was a blog 11 years? There wasn't a blog 11 years ago. Um, you know, everybody has to have Facebook and their own blog, and they've all got to have GoPros attached to their cameras so they look like Martians. Um, there's going to be cameras all over Is the place. Is that bikes. how Martians look? Yeah, Just, did you not know that? No, I can't, I can't read that. Um, you didn't know that? No, I, that was a revelation to me. <laughs> Do they use the GoPros as eyes or they're actually on the heads? Like actually, antennas. Actually fixed on the heads. Yeah, wow, that's cool. This is how we survive on the road. Um, and it's detracting from the purpose of the trip. The purpose of the trip is not to see how many YouTube videos you can get up and to put up your stories on, on your blog and to put up all your, your photographs on Facebook every single day. The purpose of the trip is to get out there and experience the world and to meet local people, wherever the local and people then, are. And then secondary, if you have the privilege of some, some equipment, then secondary, but for us, then wanting to share it. Don't go around shoving your GoPro in people's faces. And How did you say that and make that sound rude? <laughs> shoving your GoPro in people's faces. <laughs> or, or your camera, you know. It's... It's, it's not how travel is meant to be. We've, we've spoken to some people in the last six months, and we don't get to meet many of the uh, motorcycle travellers, and they were describing very enthusiastically their, their processes and talking. And, and okay, travelling is different for everybody, but I just found that what they were saying was a little bit sad because it sounded to me like 95% of their entire journey they've been witnessing through a screen as opposed to lifting their head up and actually looking at it with their eyes and anticipating it and, and, and enjoying it and, you know, really having it make a mark. They've been looking at their entire journey through some kind of camera screen or another. And having complete and utter sheer panic because they couldn't get online where we were and they couldn't update their blog or Facebook. And because they couldn't do that, they felt in their own minds that it was somehow diminishing their journey. It's interesting. I mentioned that I've been in tourism for many years. And one of the things we developed, especially as digital photography became popular, is we realized that we have to tell people sometimes that, you know, it's up to you whether you want to take a photograph or not from this this particular interaction. Uh, you know, or you might see a whale, for instance, to come up to the boat. But you might want to consider whether you really want to have the experience of looking through your camera just to capture it, or they actually want to look at the whale and really feel the whole thing and smell the smells the whole bit and then just go buy a postcard afterwards that a, you know, a pro and has shot. And make it selfishly your moment. Exactly. You have yeah. to sh make it yours. Make it private. Make it something you absorb into yourself as opposed to, wow, hang on, this moment can only be real if, if 20,000 people on Facebook see it. We saw, yeah. we were lucky enough to see that man, mantra ray yeah. jump twice out of the water. He was massive. I don't know, 20 foot across. This is a few weeks he, ago. He was, he was huge. And I'd never even realized they could jump out of the water fully. And somebody said, oh, you know, where's the picture? And I'm like, I didn't get a picture. What? What? You didn't get a picture? No, I was so awestruck that I just watched. 
and I can remember it exactly as to what happened. Okay, so I don't have a picture. I can't prove that I saw it. But the but, photographs But, it, but neither of us have the point. need to prove anything to anybody. Yeah. I was speaking with somebody not long ago there, a couple of weeks back, I think it might have been Dr. Greg Fraser, who mentioned about people um, going around and, and experiencing their, their or, or on their adventure with their cameras, and they've got a GoPro up front, and they've got a GoPro pointing in the back and, and off to the sides, and they're so set on filming that, yeah, that they might be missing a, the, the experience as well. So it's, it's interesting. It seems to be a, a, common, um, a common thought, anyway, with our, our obsession with technology. But I, w- I was going to say that, you know, we talked about you breaking away from the constraints of, of standard life or standard Western-style life and realizing that if you give over to the fact that you're not in control, you, you actually experience more are you not finding that in the other way uh in a juxtaposition to that you're actually being hemmed in a little bit by your technology by by the demands of technology that technology puts on us as we embrace it i think we have definitely been through that i know that a couple of years ago if not even perhaps a little more recently that we ended up being slaves to that. And oh, I was on a spending a little so... bit more recently. No, let me How the, many... no, hang on, hang on, let me finish. There's two different points here I want to make. Oh. One is actually being a slave to technology in terms of the amount of time that we were spending, or I was spending, downloading, sorting, organizing it. Because once you've captured the video or the photograph, that's just the start. The hard drives, the computer, the screen, the you know, it just it just takes an awful long time. Um, I've been spending more time on the computer recently, not because I've been um, connected so much to the, to, to the time it takes, but to the simple fact that now, without any funds, the motivating factor to spend time doing anything other than writing is just because we've got to generate some kind of revenue because food and fuel isn't free. I'm, I'm glad you said that you're spending a little more time in front of your computer. But I'm now, I'm now spending 50, okay, other than the last few weeks because of the website, I'm now spending at least 50% less time and I'm certainly 100% less stressed about capturing and all digital stuff um, than I was, say, two or three years ago where I was really, well, we've got to get this, I've got to put it all down. And I was, uh, literally, the conversation we had a few minutes ago was based on first-hand experience that I was, you know, literally tie myself in knots if I wasn't able to share everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you recognize that. Totally. Because <laughs> yeah. I sure as hell did. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you ride BMW motorcycles, um, a 1999 R1100 GS and a 2001 yeah. F650 GS. Why BMW and why those ones in particular? Oh, me first. Me first. Yes, dear. Go ahead. Oh, um... 11 years ago, well, no, 12 years ago, when you had a look at the range of motorcycles that were available. You mean adventure ad- motorcycles? Adventure motorcycles. Um, well, that term, yeah, it wasn't really around that much then. Um, I had a 650 BMW, the Fundoro. Nice bike, um, but it's what we weren't able to make the adapta- adaptations to that bike that we knew that we wanted to, so that it could cope with our first hard uh, continent, which was Africa. Um, also, I'm not very tall. Hang case... on, I'm not very tall. Not very tall suggests a little bit tall. 
I'm not tall. Honey, apart from, I'm five foot three. apart from the fact you haven't got hairy feet, you are Frodo. I'm five foot three. So. You're five foot two and a bit. I'm five foot three. Ow, stop that. So there was the KTM 640 that was there. Um, I needed a ladder to get on it. <laughs> or a parachute. And um, my feet would dangle in the air. Um, oh, yes, you know, just flip your hip over sideways. You you can get on that bike. No, you can't. Not if you're in sand or yeah, and, and rock carrying or your luggage with you. No, no, that would make the journey sheer hell. Um, but I also didn't want to drop the suspension of any bike. I wanted to keep the, uh, the full suspension there. I needed the ground clearance. So we were very restricted. Um, the Sorry, we were restricted? I wasn't. I was fine. I was very restricted. And it's a long time ago. So it was the 650 because I enjoyed riding the 650. Um, it has enough power to get me out of trouble uh, whilst also... Uh, enabling me to ride comfortably on it for long periods of time on any tar road. We also knew that we could put the larger fuel tanks on because it's used in the Dakar rally. Yep, larger fuel tanks were available. Mm. Again, that was because of where we were intending to go in Africa. A lot of the time you don't need to use the larger fuel tanks, but in certain areas we But do you remember the conversation yes. we had all that time ago about the seat? Also, we found out how the seat was made and it allowed us not just to cut it out I had to make it shorter but we also cut it in from the sides to make it narrower and that allowed Lisa to get both of her um, the balls of her toes on both feet onto the ground but so the, the simple answer is 11, 12 years ago that there just were not the choices that there are now but I'd also been riding the the BMW mm. uh, first of all Strada then Fundoro um, and I was I was very happy uh, with the bike we also wanted the bike that was going to be easy to maintain and was strong and I knew that the engine was a road tax engine. Yes, mine is the one with the road tax engine. Um, was a very strong engine. Um, and I was really happy with the 1100, the 1150. I think it had only just been released. Um, I didn't feel the need to buy a new bike. We didn't have the money to buy a new bike for me because we bought Lisa one. We bought Lisa one because the 650 Fundura, we didn't feel figure was going to be ideal. Uh, I think it was the right choice. There were some gearbox issues, but... The bikes we have now and the bike we started with um, have been have been a really good choice for us. Um, we get asked a lot about the ideal bike choice. I think people are surprised by my answer. The ideal bike choice is whatever turns you on. Um, if you if you plan to ride a bike because of all the sensibilities of a decision, the the practicalities of well, I can do this and do that. It's not. It's not going to work in the long term. You've got to make. You've got to make sure that no matter how ill you are, how tired you are, whatever the circumstance may be, that you genuinely want to throw your leg over that machine every single day. Whether it's a Goldwing, a BMW, or you know, a, a 90cc like posty bike. C90. Yeah. As long as you want to get on that bike, that's that's the motivating factor to, to for, for bike choice. Because if you if you make your journey long enough. No matter where you are, no matter how long you go for, sooner or later, it will break down. You are going to have to repair it. You are going to have to fix it. No motorcycle journey ever finished because a bike broke down. They finished because the rider decided not to fix it that one last time. So you've got to, you've got to make sure you make a sensible decision, but make sure that you're making the decision from the heart. A BMW, a KTM, it doesn't matter. 
Our conversation with Simon and Lisa went on for some time afterwards. And I think what we're going to do is we're going to split it into another show because we've run way over time on this one already. Um, we have a lot more to hear from them. They are a wealth of information. I mean, let's face it. You do not ride a motorcycle for 11 years on the road without learning so much. There's just a, a, a just a, an encyclopedia of information there uh, between the two of them. But check them out at their website. So that's toridetheworld.com. And that's a numeral two, toridetheworld.com. But they wanted you to go to their, their Facebook page so go to facebook.com everybody knows facebook forward slash to ride the world same thing the numeral to ride the world and they've got some great stuff i'm just looking at their facebook page now and they've got uh, a disgusting picture of a tick buried buried into the skin here um they've got a whole bunch of things on here they have video and and all kinds of stuff so check it out as a matter of fact look at this they've got 13,000 plus likes almost 14,000 likes on their webpage so if you haven't checked them out clearly you're missing out you got to be one of the few people who hasn't been to their page ton of information travel equipment the whole bit it's it's really really cool to uh to see what they've got going there running way over but not feeling bad for it at all i'm jim martin for adventure rider radio and we hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it get out there and ride ride safe i'm simon thomas and I'm Lisa Thomas. And we are? We are part of To Ride the World. We're not part, are we? Both. We are. You <laughs> I'm so much better than that. Let's do this again. I am Simon Thomas, and I'm Lisa Thomas, and we are To Ride the World. You are listening to. I'm Simon Thomas. And I'm Lisa Thomas. And we are To, to ride, ride the, the world. world. And, and you are listening, listening to Adventure, Adventure Rider, Rider Radio. Radio.